This podcast is sponsored by the IAFF Financial Corporation. Working with Nationwide since 2003, the IAFF Financial Corporation provides IAFF members with access to deferred compensation plans, Roth 457s, post-employment health plans, and health savings accounts through the Frontline Program. With over $12 billion in assets under management, this program gives our brothers and sisters choices in their financial health. Visit IAFF-FC.com for more information. And welcome back to the IFF Podcast. Mark Treglio is here along with Doug Stern. How are you, Doug? Doing well, Mark. Excited about this podcast. I think it's a it's a different topic that we normally talk about, but I think it's one that's not just important, but going to be engaging for our listeners as well. You know, coming out of January with it being Cancer Awareness Month, you know, we've covered some pretty interesting topics. We covered the Memphis firefighter strike, which has been very popular amongst our listeners. We talked about Charlotte as well as how Tom Brewer has been leading his local through tough times, but remaining positive through everything. But now, you know, we've said in the past, we're shifting gears. We're really shifting gears now. We're going to talk about an event that happened over 100 years ago, and actually the 100th anniversary of one of the most infamous events of that time frame. It's about the West Virginia Mine Wars from the early part of the 20th century. And a lot of people will think that, well, what's that have to do with the IFF podcast and everything? I think it has to do with a lot in the way that we organize. We have guests with us today. Our first guest is a gentleman that's helped put this all together. Uh, He is the president of Local 947, Greensboro, North Carolina. He is a strategic organizer that works under us in strategic campaigns for the IFF and helps me as we oversee the IFF Southern Initiative, which has seen membership in the South and the Southern states of Georgia and the Carolinas grow by about 40% over these last couple of years. And that is Dave Coker. Dave, how are you today? I'm doing good, Mark. I'm uh, excited to be here and I appreciate the opportunity. Also joining us today is Lou Martin. Lou is Secretary of the Board at the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum. How are you, Lou? I'm, I'm doing good. Good to be here. Before we get into the the real story about the mine wars and everything, I want to take a couple minutes to go over the backgrounds of our guests today. So Dave, starting with you, tell us about yourself and how you got involved with the Mine Wars Museum. Yeah. So like you said, Mark, I'm president of Local 947 in Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, I've been on the job 16 years now. But before my life in the fire service, I was involved with the labor movement. I was alignment for the regional phone company in the South. And that's really where I got involved with uh, being a union member and being an active union member. So when I came to the, to the IFF, I had a, a little bit, I guess, broader perspective than uh, about organized labor than um, a lot of, a lot of the members, at least in, in my local and my state do um, when they come on the job, you know, in a place like North Carolina, when you, you come to the fire department, it's, it, it, it's likely the first union job you've had, even if you're, you know, well into your 20s or 30s. So for me, getting, you know, really getting involved with the labor movement and having a broader perspective of the labor movement has kind of led me to the place where we're talking about the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum. So, Well, thanks, Dave. You've done a great job for the IFF. We really appreciate the work that you're doing for us. Lou Martin, tell us about yourself. Sure. I grew up in Northern West Virginia, pretty far from the coal fields, and um, 
I studied labor history at West Virginia University, and I didn't really get involved with looking at coal miners and their history until 2011, when a friend of mine from school invited me to participate in this 2011 March on Blair Mountain. And that was a recreation of the Miners March that I'll talk about in a little bit. And it was uh, walking 50 miles from Marmette to Blair, West Virginia, that I met a lot of people from um, Southern West Virginia, people who were members of the United Mine Workers. And I started to be drawn into this history. And Blair Mountain has this uh, way of drawing people into this history. And uh, and it's uh, 10 years later, and I, I still haven't uh, escaped the pool of Blair Mountain. Very nice. Tell us about the mine wars. What were they? How did they come about? And what drew both of you to really making this a passion? The West Virginia mine wars were a series of battles over unionization in southern West Virginia in the early 1900s. Coal miners were trying to to join the United Mine Workers, which had been formed in 1890, but it was 1902 before you had your first locals in the southern part of the state. The terrain in southern West Virginia is very mountainous and a lot of the coal operators felt that the only way they could compete with northern coal mines in Pennsylvania and Ohio was if they stayed non-union. And they they fought unionization like it was a life and death struggle, literally. And miners were being denied one right after another, constitutional right, they would say. And so as uh, the operators escalated, so too did the miners, and it resulted in intermittent violence between 1902 and 1922. So a lot of West Virginians remember this as a a really hard fought battle and sacrifices of a generation of coal miners so that people in the future would have those constitutional rights and would have the right to form and join the union of their choice. When you talk about the struggle for a generation, what kind of struggle? I, I, there was violence, but I, it goes deeper than violence, doesn't it, Lou? It's more than just what, when we think of a violent labor strike, what we would think of. Can you kind of elaborate a little bit on some of the struggles that were going on during that time? So about 90% of coal miners in Southern West Virginia lived in company towns. And these were towns that were built and owned by the coal companies. And that meant that they owned the the workers' housing, the store in town, the only store in town, the church and the school, and they employed the minister. And uh, basically nothing happened in the town that they didn't have control over. And a lot of miners were getting paid in scrip. Uh, and that's a, a metal coin that was a token that had the name of the coal company printed on it. And you could only redeem that at the company store. So they weren't able to take that to other independent stores and buy goods uh, for their family. And so this may have started as a matter of convenience for the company because these mines were in, you know, seemingly remote parts of the the mountains. But soon the companies realized that this was uh, 
a great way to control their workers. And they also hired armed guards. They called them mine guards. But really, they were patrolling the towns more than they were the mines. And they were making sure that no union organizers came to town. They would evict somebody if they had an unwanted guest in their house. You know, they would throw a family out if they joined the union. And then during the strikes, when they eventually had enough momentum to call a strike, the company immediately evicted everybody that was part of the strike. And the United Mine Workers had to provide tents to the strikers to live in. And we're talking about over the brutal cold winter. We're not talking about a, a Sunday picnic. These families lived in the, the mud and the snow and the rain and in very precarious situations uh, for months and in at least one case for a couple of years. And this meant that they were living on the rations that the union provided, which was... Uh, oftentimes a sack of flour, some cooking oil, and maybe some beans. And they were living in very um, trying circumstances. And so a lot of times when miners think about what it took to get them a union, they think about these folks who, you know, lived through these very, very difficult conditions because they believed in the union. And so it's a very powerful thing for miners today to, to think about. How many people are we talking about here working in the mines during this time? How many people living in these tent cities? And it's not like four or five. This, this, is, this is bigger than people think at this time, correct? Yes. Uh, I, well, first of all, mining was a, um, an industry that required a lot of workers, and the majority of their costs were tied up in labor costs. In the state of West Virginia, you probably had 100,000 workers around this time. And, um, and across the country, it was three or 400,000 coal miners. This was a very labor intensive process. So miners would go into the mine with a pickaxe and a auger drill bit, and they would lay on the, the ground of the mine and chip away underneath of the, the coal until they had formed like a, you know, a void under a block of coal, and then they drill into it with the, the hand drill, the auger, and pack that with black powder, and then they'd light the fuse, and it would blow the coal down onto the ground, and then they would shovel it into a cart with a, a, a hand shovel. So you can imagine that in order to increase production, there, there was no other way to do it besides hiring more miners. And when the price was high, they would hire them dozens and hundreds of them at a time. So these towns, each one of them was a small town, maybe three or 400 people. But they say if there's a, a creek, Cabin Creek, that runs from the, the Kanawha River near Charleston, West Virginia, all the way up into the mountains, and they say that if you counted everybody in all of those little towns all along the way, they outnumbered the, the number of people in the state capital of Charleston. So this would have been 20, 25,000 people eventually, you know, in these along these creeks. And uh, their housing climbed up the mountainsides. These were densely packed communities. 
And the, the tent colonies were each a few hundred people, you know, people from a whole town would move. Well, not, not everybody. Some would go back home and live with family or um, that sort of thing, try to move on. But those people who really wanted to build the union formed these tent colonies, each about a few hundred people. So without the union back in that day, without, without that kind of organization, what was, what were the pay and benefits of working in the mines at that time? So Oftentimes, someone would first be hired into the mines as a trapper boy when they were 13 or 14. And in the early 1900s, they would make 50 cents a day. The other job that uh, that they would grow into would be the hand loader. And this would be a person who was paid by the ton. And the tonnage rate would vary, but a good coal miner who could load a lot of coal in a, in a day, a 10-hour day, would typically make about $2, something on that order. And then there were some other jobs like the motorman. They were beginning to electrify the transportation of coal to the surface, and they could make a dollar and a half, something along those lines. And then the, the typical miner's house was four rooms, and this would be four rooms for the mother, the father, all the kids, a bathroom, a kitchen. And these were very small houses. They often didn't have insulation. All of their supplies would come from the company store. And it was typical for them to not have enough to make it through the month and have to rely on credit from the company store. This was by design, of course. This was a hard existence. And one of the guys who led uh, one of the first big strikes named Fred Mooney, he said he looked at his wife and her her dress was made out of cheap material from the company store. He looked at his kids and didn't feel like they were eating enough. And he was, he considered himself one of the best miners on Cabin Creek. And he said, and I just couldn't get ahead. And so this is when he, he said he was, one day he just turned to his uh, buddy, as they called him in the mine. And he said, we got to get the union in here. And that's, that was in 1908 and he began the process of organizing to try to address some of those economic conditions that they were struggling with. So really the coal mining companies were getting these miners two ways. They were underpaying them and then on the back end, not giving them the way to spend the money efficiently through the company stores. So they had to go in debt, owing them more money where they were underpaying them. And it just kind of became a vicious cycle, right? Where there was really no way to get out from it unless they unionized. Absolutely. And in fact, there were some independent stores that started to offer people, we'll buy your script, and then they would try then to redeem the script themselves at the company store. And the companies put a stop to that because in lean times, they made more money on the company store than they did on the coal the guys were digging. And so this was, they recognized that, um, we need to maintain this system. We can't allow farmers to come in and sell their goods. We can't allow competition. So they weren't paying them enough and they were overcharging them at the company store and for their housing. A lot of people say, well, why didn't they just, you know, move somewhere else? And a lot of miners did move around quite a bit and they looked for other jobs. You know, it's like today, a lot of people will say, well, why didn't you just do something else. Okay, what? <laughs> you, you tell me. 
what, especially 1915, you know, what else are you going to do? And if you came up through that system as one of the trapper boys at 13, you didn't know anything else. You didn't have any other skills other than coal mining. So that's why you were so reliant on that system too, I would think. Absolutely. There were people who were recruited from far away and they would sometimes go back, for instance, to Europe. They would go back to the South. There would be people who would migrate to big cities and they would face a lot of the same problems in the big cities that the coal miners were facing back in Southern West Virginia. So this was really bigger than, you know, just find a better situation. They tried that too. <laughs> and eventually Fred, for instance, said, I realized I would always be traveling to the next town and the next town looking for a better way of life and come up with the same set of problems, the same income, and in each month, the same amount in debt. Now, now Doug mentioned uh, something that was important that these workers get into really what's a, a bit of a vicious cycle of, you know, they're coming up in it, they can't, they can't provide for their families, but they have to keep moving. This obviously just led to decades of violence. Are there three or four particular instances of violence or, or rebellion here that stand out amongst the decades that, that of fighting that went on? Yeah. I, w- I want to first of all say that part of it was this s- lifestyle. You know, this, this, they faced violence underground in the mines. And I'm talking about explosions that would tear up the tracks of the mine and throw men back into the shaft. And, you know, this was a, uh, when there was an explosion, when there were accidents, it was, it was a really violent situation. But then they also started to face violence above ground with these mine guards that patrolled the towns that, especially if they found out that they were trying to organize, the mine guards would kind of go into overdrive and they would be snooping around your house. They would have curfews. They would threaten you. They would harass your family. And increasingly, the miners were were appealing to the legislature to get rid of the mine guard system appealing to the courts, directly appealing to the governor in the form of rallies. And and the miners would say that oftentimes it was the mine guards who acted violently first. One of the most notorious incidents happened in 1913 in February. It was a tent colony of Holly Grove along Paint Creek. And The miners were on strike and they were all in their tents asleep when a train that had been specially outfitted by the mine guards with armor and a Gatlin gun came down the tracks. It sounded its whistle before it got to the tent colony. And then they began firing at the tent colony. A lot of people remember, you know, bullet holes in their tents from this situation and people were traumatized by it. And one man was killed, Sesco Estep. And even though it was only one man killed, this was, uh, this was an incident that made worldwide news because it seemed so vicious and unnecessary. And the miners themselves were there with their wives and their children in tents and being fired at with a Gatling gun, as well as Winchester rifles from an armored train. So this was one that ultimately the governor 
realized that he had to bring this strike to a close and he he began actively trying to help uh, broker a deal that did result in the first union contract in that area in quite some time. Another important incident that I alluded to earlier was the Battle of Blair Mountain. Now, after the miners organized around the the state capital in Charleston, um, they had a number of locals, they had the veterans of those strikes, and they began to organize further south in West Virginia in Mingo, Logan, and McDowell County. And they were, these are three of the southernmost counties, and they were the uh, non-union, really like a fortress of non-union mines that they were trying to break into. And the operators there decided that this had to stop and they were willing to to do anything to stop it. So the miners um, were up against martial law. The governor called martial law and had literally 200 people arrested and jailed without facing uh, a jury of their peers. They had more mine guards in these uh, counties, and um, there was even a massacre in in the town of Matewan. There was a lot of uh, violence, and the miners of around Charleston on Paint Creek and Cabin Creek, they had just just decided enough is enough. They formed what they called the Redneck Army, and they called it this because they wore red bandanas around their neck. And they used the red bandana as a symbol of solidarity among the the, um, Southern white West Virginians, the African-Americans who had migrated from the South, and the European immigrants who worked in the mines alongside them. They overcame these divisions and they, they formed this redneck army with the purpose, they said, of marching South to Mingo County freeing their union brothers from jail, ending martial law, and bringing the union with them. The sheriff of Logan County, this was in 1921, and he made $30,000 a year paid by the coal operators directly. And so he was one of the richest men in West Virginia, and he had a small army, and it was, uh, he believed, his duty to stop the miners' march. He fortified Blair Mountain, a ridge line several miles long, and he had at least three 30 caliber machine guns on top of the mountain to fire down at the miners when they approached. The miners, uh, by the time they reached Blair Mountain, the estimates range from 8,000 miners up to 14,000 armed, heading south, and the Battle of Blair Mountain would last five days, and this was... uh, started August 28th, 1921. And ultimately, the President of the United States would call out the U.S. Army to come in the uh, disorder and to, to quell the rebellion. When the U.S. Army arrived in Blair, the miners said, we can't fight Uncle Sam. And many of them were still wearing their army uniform. They, they had just fought in World War I. And so they decided to lay down their weapons, in some cases surrender directly to the army. But they also hoped that this would mean that the United States Senate would open up an investigation in the conditions that led to this armed rebellion and that they, 
they might finally get some rights restored to them that had been deprived by the company town system. And so that was the end of the Battle of Blair Mountain, and that took place 100 years ago uh, this August. And uh, we're going to mark that uh, occasion with a series of events over Labor Day weekend. So the the Battle of Blair Mountain is really the culmination of decades of, of struggle, violence, marches, workers struggling to get by. And Blair Mountain is really the, the culmination of everything. What happens in the aftermath of the Battle of Blair Mountain and how does it affect workers moving forward? Yeah, this is one of those um, questions that, you know, why do West Virginians remember this battle so much? And I think it was because it really showed the extent to which miners had to go to get their basic rights. And it showed the lengths to which the company would go to deprive them of those rights. And um, it ended in the miners surrendering and ultimately being charged with treason for trying to overthrow the state of West Virginia. More than 200, I believe 500 people were indicted, and I believe more than 200 of those were treason charges. They were tried the next year. The first handful of cases were tried, I should say, and the miners were acquitted except in cases where they had actually evidence that they had committed a murder. Those people were sent to prison on 10-year sentences. But most of the miners were being acquitted of that treason charge because the jury recognized these are people who are trying to get basic rights and who have been denied them. Ultimately, though, it was a defeat. Uh, The union would go into decline for several years, not just in southern West Virginia, but across the north, because northern operators began to say, if you can't organize everybody, we're not going to pay union wages if they're able to pay non-union wages. So the whole United Mine Workers went into decline for a number of years, but it really was a matter of the these guys were waiting for their moment these miners and their families waited until the New Deal, 1933, and the enactment of favorable labor legislation really gave them the ability to form the union. And once they had the government on their side, they say they they unionized West Virginia in a matter of weeks because these folks had the, the memory of Blair Mountain was burned into their brains. And so they didn't forget it. To this day, they remember Blair Mountain because of this. When you say they organized West Virginia in a matter of weeks, how many miners are we talking about? Well, in 1933, it was during the Depression, but uh, I believe it was 70 to 80,000 miners. So they went from a few hundred members in West Virginia to 70 to 80,000 and um, in no time flat. That's pretty. That's pretty incredible organizing movement there, um, and I think it speaks to you know certainly the memory of Blair Mountain, but I think at that point the the miners saw that the union was their best option moving forward. That's a that really that's a tremendous. I try to wrap my head around the numbers here, but that's unbelievable. So we're talking about events that pretty much defined you know West Virginia for sure, but our country about a hundred years ago. How does that pertain to today? in West Virginia. Does this stuff still resonates out there? 
Yes, I think that um, the memory of Blair Mountain has been kept alive by coal miners and their families for generations. It was actually kept out of the textbooks, believe it or not. The the West Virginia history textbook only had a passing mention of the mine wars and did not intentionally mention Blair Mountain for decades. Even today, we still need to work to get these events back into our curriculum. But uh, as I said, the miners and their families kept the memory alive. And, and it means a lot of things to them. But I think one of the lessons is the power of solidarity. When people band together, they can really accomplish great things, even if they are poor, even if they are relatively powerless as the miners were that uh, solidarity is really the key to uh, getting workers a decent life with dignity. You mentioned the mine wars and the Battle of Blair Mountain, not getting the opportunity to make textbooks and be a part of curriculum in schools. This gives us an excellent opportunity to segue into the work that you're doing now at the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum. Tell us about your mission and then we'll bring in Dave to talk about how he got involved. Sure. The West Virginia Mine Wars Museum has a mission of preserving and interpreting these events and educating the public about them. And that includes educating the next generation of West Virginians about them. So we are are collecting, we've been collecting artifacts since we started, and that includes bullet casings from Blair Mountain, a Winchester rifle from Blair Mountain, and, uh, and we assume that some coal miner decided to quickly stow it away when the, the army approached. And there it sat for nearly a century before it was discovered. Um, so we have a lot of artifacts from the coal camp, from the uh, different strikes and the different battles that took place and the people who lived through these events. And we have a series of permanent exhibits going from coal camp life up through organizing and the different uh, events of the mine wars. But beyond that, we're trying to, to not just have the history be trapped up in a little museum, but we've got an education program where we work with West Virginia school teachers to develop lesson plans. And this includes forming an advisory council that has gone over our lesson plans and given us advice on how to uh, revise them and improve them. We've also had teachers who have volunteered to do the lesson plans in their classes and to tell us what went well, what we need to work on, and then to help us get word out about this curriculum. And it includes even a week-long series of uh, lessons on the mind wars that has students doing things like role-playing and thinking about how this divided communities or thinking about how different newspapers covered the events and why the differences. So we, in addition to just having students learn about the events, the goal is to help them improve things like reading and writing and critical thinking. We've gotten some great feedback from the school teachers. And of course, they have had their own organizing in recent years and two massive strikes back to back in 2018 and 19. And I think that, uh, and many of them wore the red bandana and memory of Blair Mountain to kind of call on this history of resistance. 
and they wore red when they showed up at the state capitol for their rallies and demanded that lawmakers listen to what they're trying to say. They have been uh, systematically deprived of funding over the years uh, in this you know, drive to cut taxes and cut taxes year after year. It's the school system and the school kids that have actually suffered the most. Remembering Blair Mountain, remembering the, the campaigns of the mine wars is a good way to remember that we can address some of these injustices by working together collectively. And probably there's, there's not really any other way to do it. So we have the museum, we have the education curriculum. And when COVID hit, we also went online. We put some of our exhibits online. And so if you go to wvminewars.org, you can see some of our online exhibits. We had our artifacts professionally photographed for this purpose. We also reconvened the teachers council to say, how can we make our lesson plans remote learning friendly? Finally, I'll say that we have events. One thing that we have done more than once is called the strike supper, having a community event, bringing people together, remembering the diversity of the coal camps and through different foods that they ate, as well as handing out red bandana awards. And these red bandanas go to the people today who embody the spirit of some of the the heroes of the mine wars generation. Good. You've provided an excellent history of this time in our national history and what it, what it means for labor. I want to bring in Dave Coker, who's been sitting here patiently waiting to jump in. Uh, Dave is, he's a firefighter like us, but Dave is also very passionate about the history of labor. He's very passionate about the West Virginia mine wars. So Dave, jump on in here. Give us a, give us a history of how you got involved and why this is important to you. Yeah, Mark. I, I first learned about the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum when we were developing our labor history class for ALTS 2020 prior to, you know, COVID shutting everything down. And, and that, that, that class was called Understanding the Past to Secure Your Future. You know, and, and Mark, you and I worked on that class and we, we didn't want it to be just a like a boring timeline of this happened and this happened and there, you know, then the firefighters did this. We really wanted to look at it from a broader perspective. And really the perspective was, why are things the way they are? And how can, if we understand why things are the way they are, what can we do differently or more effectively to change them? So what I mean by that is that when we look at labor history, it's not just, you know, this dusty old thing that has some dates that we should, that we should know. Um, It's more like, you know, why is it that there's been a significant decline in organized labor since the 1980s. Why has, you know, why are, why are there so many states that are right to work states now? Why is there such a lack of union density in the South and in, in places in the 12th district of the IFF and the 14th district and the Southern part of the fourth district? You know, so if we just say that's just the way things are, then we don't really have a roadmap or a plan as to, to how to, you know, change things for, for firefighters and their families and and for working families. So when we looked at this labor history class, we looked at why things are the way they are. And what we came up with were a few bullet points. And and Lou covered a lot of those with the mission of the the Mind Wars Museum. We we looked at 
you know, violent repression by employers in the state, which lose covered. We looked at the lack of education and the lack of visibility, particularly in public school textbooks about organized labor. And, you know, Luke discussed the sort of the battle as to as to how Blair Mountain was going to be told in the history books. In in our research, we, you know, we pinpointed that as far back as, you know, the sit down strikes in Flint, Michigan by the United Auto Workers for union recognition, there was a battle about how that story would be told in history books. And, and really what we saw was after, especially after the World War II period, public textbooks sort of take on a more employer and anti-union sentiment, right? So you have generations of, of Americans who are not, who are not getting the history, you know, really that is the history of most of our families and, and most of the people in this country. I mean, you think about Blair Mountain, it was the largest insurrection outside of the Civil War. It was in West Virginia and it was black workers, white workers, and immigrant workers marching together. That's a pretty profound thing. And it's, it, you know, it's been totally kept out of the history books for the most part. Uh, the other piece of the class we looked at was labor and mass media. And, you know, there's only six full-time labor reporters in the top 25 newspapers in the country, right? So labor reporting is a technical skill. And if you don't have those reporters that can tell a genuine story about it, it's going to you know, what we see is that there's either a lack of visibility or we see that, you know, stories are covered um, with bias. And a lot of these same, you know, concepts are, are stuff that DVP Todd and Tommy Malone talked about when they talked about the Memphis strike on this podcast. So it really, for me, it was, you know, when I found out about the West Virginia Mind Wars Museum, it, it was like, here's a physical brick and mortar place where, the stories of a community, the stories of workers, the stories of, of a union are being told and kept because I think the, the anecdote to a lot of this is exactly what the Mind Wars Museum is, is doing. Uh, they're developing curriculum to go into public schools. They're, you know, available to do things like this, uh, to support independent media. They, you know, they have their own magazine that they produce twice, twice a year. So, for me, like I said, the, the museum came on my radar as we developed this labor history class. And as I learned more about it, um, especially as somebody who grew up in, in the Appalachian Mountains of Western North Carolina, it just really hit home that this was the kind of project, kind of institution that as union people, um, even though it's not our industry, and even though you know none of us live in West Virginia except for Lou, that, that it's still critically important. And I think you, know, you can definitely draw a through line to the from you know the battle battle of blair mountain to the new deal victories of the umw of a you know at that time after following that it was at one time the largest industrial union in the u.s it helped you know build a significant portion of the middle class they had some really cutting edge for their time uh, collective bargaining victories and and miners dealt you know they dealt and deal with uh, a dangerous work environment. Look at the minor struggle for black lung protections. It's very similar to the firefighters, you know, our struggle for occupational, you know, cancer, presumptive disability, right? So I think there's a, you know, it's, it's an easy through line to, to say that this history by this group of workers is important to all, you know, who care about labor history and, and important to firefighters too, even if you live outside of West Virginia. So 
that's really how I came to want to support the mission of the museum. Doug, you got anything? Dave, you're, you're obviously our strategic organizer. What are some of the lessons that you've learned by following historical events like the West Virginia mine wars that we can apply to our organizing the, the tenants that run through what they did back then and what we're doing now? Yeah. So I think it's, there's two pieces to that. One is like conceptually how we think about our work, how we think about member to member organizing. Um, and that's, and really the success of, of our campaigns in the South have been built on one-on-one, one-on small group conversations, building relationships, um, you know, among firefighters. And, and that's absolutely what, you know, back in the day, minus, uh, social media and email and everything else, what, how organizing had to be done was member to member, word of mouth, one-on-one, one-on-small group meetings. Um, and although we have a bunch of tools like podcasts and, you know, all the great work that strategic campaigns does, we have to have that member to member model that was utilized back in the day. You know, the other thing, you know, you, there are times that you can pick up, I think some strategic or tactical tidbits that are, you know, applicable for today. Again, I've, you know, reference to the podcast that y'all did with, with DVP Todd and, and Tommy Malone, you know, if there's ever an IFF local going to go on strike or are preparing for a strike, I mean, there, there was some really great strategic and tactical information that they dropped on us in that, in that single hour. So for me, it's the style of organizing. And then, you know, this is laborious work. And so I think the inspiration and kind of viewing, you know, your work as an organizer in the context of a broader movement that, you know, defends firefighters and our families and helps build an economy that, that works for working families. Like those are some of the things that I would take away from it. Like I said, some of it is tangible and applicable and some of it's more conceptual in nature. So I want to swing back to Lou. The museum is located in Mingo County, West Virginia. As I'm reading here, it has a poverty rate close to 30%. Employment in the mines has been declining uh, really since the 1950s. What is the museum's role, not only in preserving history, but in terms of being a part of the community, being a fabric of that community, and, and making sure that nobody forgets about what happened there? Yeah, I want to first of all talk a little bit about the town of Mate One. Uh, so this town was the site of um, a battle in 1920 when the chief of police, Sid Hatfield, joined the miners' cause, in essence, by enforcing the laws that were on the books. He was not a union member, and he was not out there necessarily fighting the union's battles. But when the companies came to evict people who were in town limits, he said that they needed a writ from a judge in order to do so. This ultimately led to a gunfight in the town that uh, left two miners and the town's mayor dead, as well as seven of the mine guards, the private guards of the company. So this was called the Mate One Massacre at the time, but this battle uh, was sort of a, a cast a, a shadow over the town for many years because townspeople were in some ways divided by it. Um, and then in the 1980s, there was an oral history project 
to collect stories about the, the Battle of May 1, as well as about the conditions in town and different events in the town and so forth. And the community began to think carefully about its history and to promote it. And they began doing a reenactment every May of that battle on the streets of Mate One. And so this was uh, this is a, a great drama. They, they call it the Mate One drama, where people tell their story and they reenact what happened that day. And so we chose Mate One because it was a town that had already, in a way, embraced this history. And what I mean by that is to hold this history up as important, to think carefully about it, what, what it means, and not to sweep it under the rug. And so there were already a lot of these kinds of efforts underway before we started the Mine Wars Museum in 2015. I believe the Mate One drama has been going on for more than 20 years now. And so we were part of an effort to bring people to Mingo County and to Mate One that, that started before us. And we have joined in with these efforts. So we never try to take credit for doing everything. <laughs> you know, there's a, a wonderful uh, four-wheeler trail that is one of the longest in the country that a lot that brings in a lot of visitors. There's the Mate One drama. There's a lot of um, Hatfield and McCoy history in the area. This is the the, the famous feud of the late 19th century. And uh, so the Mine Wars Museum has joined with these efforts to try to bring visitors to the area. We know that tourism is never going to replace a coal industry that employed tens of thousands and at one time more than 100,000 people. But we believe that it's important to remember this history and to also be part of these efforts to spark one sector of the economy, and that's heritage tourism. And so we're proud to be part of those efforts. You know, uh, I think that the bigger issues that, that you touched on, poverty and a lot of the things that go with it, obviously that's bigger than any museum could tackle. That's bigger than even, I would say, the West Virginia state government can tackle. It really is going to take a massive effort to and this is not just Mingo County. This is a story in the Rust Belt in Detroit and in parts of Washington, D.C. You know, there, there's there's a need for massive efforts, I would say, along the lines of the New Deal. You know, this kind of uh, employment programs, revitalization programs. And so um, I, I think that uh, we're we're doing our bit to try to preserve this history and its lessons and to pitch in with the efforts to bring more people to this area seasonally. Uh, on that note, how does somebody help the museum? Our most important source of support are our monthly members. We can get grants to create a new exhibit. We can get grants to have um, an annual event. It's very difficult to get grants to keep the lights on, to pay the rent, and to pay our staff people. And these are the things that our monthly members are able to do. You can join for as little as $5 a month. If you go to our website, wvmindwars.org, you'll see a support button. And all you it takes less than a, a few minutes to just uh, plug in your, your name and your 
credit card number and choose a level of support that's comfortable for you. And for that uh, $5 a month, you, you can get the journal twice a year. We have a new designer that it looks like something that you would get out of a uh, uh, like professional magazine shop or something. It's it's really great looking. And we have a lot of great features in the, the journal, like interviews with Mine Wars descendants and what's happening at the museum and the latest in Mine Wars research. And so, yeah, the monthly membership, you can also give a one-time donation. And I want to say everybody should come to, if you can, to the Blair Centennial events. Hopefully they'll be in person. Hopefully we'll have enough people uh, vaccinated by then that, that we can do this safely. But we've got a great series of events planned for Labor Day weekend this year. That leads me to Dave. Dave, tell us about your fundraiser for the Mind Wars Museum. Yeah, so um, you know, a few months ago, um, I reached out to the museum and I just kind of had a, the idea of, of doing a, uh, a webinar and, and webinar fundraiser with all the proceeds going to uh, the museum. And, and the museum was uh, excited about the idea and, and, you know, certainly interested in, in partnering with organized labor. And so working with the museum, we're going to be putting on, on March 22nd, a, uh, a webinar. And it's going to be a title of classes, My Members Don't Care. Strategic Planning for Effective Union Leadership and Engaging Members. And uh, it's going to be uh, a little bit a little bit over an hour long, and it's going to kind of talk about at the local level um, how union leaders, uh, union activists can engage with members, how they can put structures in place that help get members involved, how they can, you know, plan for success, um, so how you're not, you know, so we're not always just tackling what the crisis of the day is, you know, really relying on the time, talent, and energy that our members have to try to address the issues that impact us daily. So we only have 100 spots. Um, We open tickets up right, I want to say the last week in February, really just a few days ago, and we've sold almost half the tickets. We're sitting right now at four to three tickets sold. We got 57 tickets left. And yeah, it's, it's going to be, I think it'll be a, a good time. It'll be a good class. We've got firefighters signed up. We, uh, I was just looking at the registration earlier today. We have uh, a teacher's union from Toronto. They've got, they're sending seven members. So uh, yeah, it's going to be, I think, a fun class and an engaging topic. And hopefully uh, folks will be able to take some tangible strategies and tactics home and apply them to their own local. So. Dave, where, where can people find that information so they can sign up for the class? Uh, Doug, yeah, that's a great question. Folks can reach out to me at dave.coker at pffg.org, and I can send them the link to sign up. And you can also look at, you know, the West Virginia Mine War social media. They've, uh, um, they've been advertising it. So those are the two places that they can find it. Okay. We've reached that part of the show where I hit up each one of you for your closing thoughts on this what's been an eye-opening topic. I thought it was uh, very insightful. It's some very good information that a lot of people don't know about. So uh, I'll start with you, Lou, come to you, get your closing thoughts on this. Well, I first of all want to thank Dave for having this fundraiser for us. And as I told Dave, you know, this is not 
a drop in a bucket. This is like a bucket on the on the drop because we started this museum essentially uh, eight people threw fifty dollars a piece into a pot, <laughs> you know, and so that we we've started from a very humble place and we still are a small budget museum. We try to do a lot with a little and we are going to be able to do so much with the money that Dave is raising for this class. And I want to thank all the IAFF members who are taking Dave's class and contributing. This is, this is huge for us. And I, 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 again, can't thank Dave and the IAFF enough. Thank you. Okay. Dave, how about you? If there's one thing you want to leave folks with, what would it be? Um, yeah, I would, I would say that, you know, the, the course of the union movement, the course of the labor movement, you know, literally hundreds of thousands and, and, and more of, you know, we know the big names of labor leaders and labor heroes, but there's a lot of unsung folks along the way. And, you know, folks struggled and sacrificed, you know, as again, as we heard, you know, just one small example from the Memphis strike. You know, I think a lot of folks don't know that that same that same month that Memphis went out, you know, there were about five other IFF locals that were also out on strike during that time period. And, you know, there's a lot of folks who struggled and sacrificed to have the stuff that we that we take for granted today. So those stories deserve to be told. They deserve to be remembered and understood. And, you know, as as union union leaders, union activists, it's it's our responsibility to weaponize that information for today's struggle. So it is is applicable and inspiring to today's generation and tomorrow's generation. So I would just say thanks to, uh, you know, Mark and Doug, you guys for taking the opportunity or giving us the opportunity to talk about this stuff and, you know, encourage our IFF leaders across, you know, the U.S. and Canada to think about that, think about those things, um, you know, that everything we have today, most of us, somebody, somebody else built it for us. And it's our responsibility to do the same for, for our members and our families and the next generation. So, Doug, you want to start taking us out? Yeah, I think that sums it up perfectly. Appreciate, you know, Lou, your time today talking about the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum. Let me throw the website out there once again for folks that are interested. It's wvminewars.org. Really great stuff. I, I learned a lot just, you know, having you here, hopefully people learn the same as they listen. Dave, thanks always again for your passion, not just for IFF issues, but for the labor movement in general. You, you really are doing a heck of a job. And you know, I, for one, appreciate learning from you every time we talk. Don't tell people I said that, but I guess it's too late now. It's on a podcast. Um, no, so Mark, I, I think this was really helpful. Hopefully people enjoyed this as much as I did learning a little bit about the history of really the labor movement and the labor fight here in America. Uh, oh, definitely, without a doubt. And uh, I want to start with you know, Dave's work for the IFF has been phenomenal. It's it's a lot of, you know, get in there, get dirty. It's a lot of work that, you know, quite frankly, a lot of union leaders don't look forward to doing. And, but he gets in there, he doesn't make newspaper headlines, you know, and, and just does, no, he does the solid work of our union. So I just want to get that out there in our, express my appreciation for Dave. And I think as for the history of this, I think it's important that union members remember what was laid down on the line for them uh, years ago. I mean, I think we have too many rallies today where you show up, you get your t-shirt and hot dog and 
you wave your sign and then that's it. Nothing really happens. And that wasn't really the case back then. This was real life situations, you know, people paying the price for what they believed in, knowing that others down the road would, would benefit from their sacrifice. And I think if you allow incidents like Blair Mountain and the mine wars to fade into history, people aren't going to know how to fight in the future. So I, I think, I think, I thank Lou for coming on today. It's a tremendous uh, story that needs to be told more often. And uh, I've really, really enjoyed this, this history lesson today. That, that concludes another great episode of the podcast. Thanks everybody for listening. Make sure you share this important information, not just with your friends and your family, but for the people you work with as well. I'll let them know they can download this wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, stay safe, everybody.